Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about the book Shakespeare for Squirrels by Christopher Moore. Before before we jump into the usual stuff, the bio, the synopsis, all that, that stuff that you uh, have grown to love over the years, I want to call out, it's a very special day um, today, May 3rd, when we're recording this, is the birthday of Ryan, the marketing former marketing intern. So want to give a big uh, happy birthday to Ryan. My understanding is that Ryan is uh, sans employment currently, and maybe well, he might be looking for another unpaid internship. Oh, <laughs> you think he's got some time on his hands and you can do some work for I us? I mean, it seems that way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, uh, maybe you know... And I don't want to drag out, air his dirty laundry or anything, but like this is the time where you know, like a lot of people are having trouble with their employment status because of the the pandemic and everything. And he is definitely one of those that's affected by this. He's furloughed, um, which I believe means just like indefinitely unpaid, but technically still an employee, but eligible for unemployment. Right? Is that what that is? Yeah, I, I I think so. I, I, I honestly don't know. I think furloughed means like we don't have work for you, um, but we'll pay your um your like health benefits. Oh I think that that's the sense. difference between furloughed and and like laid off. Right. Now the question becomes I, how eligible are you? I, I, I don't know. I don't well, know. I, but I, dude's looking for a job, uh, from my understanding again, not to air his dirty laundry. So I'm <laughs> assuming that means that, you know. I mean, yeah, he thinks the job will pay more than unemployment or there's no unemployment. Well, there. Well, yeah, there is. There is. uh, He's he's been posting his um, his his process of applying for because, like, here's the other thing. Unemployment is just getting like bombarded with all of these like applications. And so, like, no state is ready for like the quantity of of, you know, applicants and stuff. And so. That's been a whole scenario where even just getting someone on the phone is like an hour and a half or two hours. So I've been picking up little things here and there from him and some other uh, friends going through that process. So, yeah, he's he's eligible. I think he got through Uh, really wow. Like, I mean, we just run and just say happy birthday. Now we're (laughs) talking about his whole life. But uh, um, do you at what age do you not say the birth like the age like like how old he is? Oh, I have no idea. As men, I don't know that that ever this happens. Doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, I think for women, it's like twelve or something. He might. I don't. Is he older than you? How old are you? Uh, I am forty-seven. Wow, he just turned forty-seven. So you guys are like the same. There you go. Hmm. And here I thought he Old was guys. such a nice kid, but like, yeah, we're we're the same age. So a couple of oldies. Anyway. Happy birthday, Ryan. Sorry about all the unemployment talk. I don't yeah. know what to say. To <laughs> um, weird tangents. So. Yeah. It bears mentioning, too, I believe um, May 1st was Axel Tayari's birthday, friend of the podcast. So happy birthday to him, Could too. Yep. I don't, and I don't tomorrow's know if... May the 4th. Star Wars' birthday or oh. something. Star. Yeah, I never... All right. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> here's... Uh, Here's the bio for Christopher Moore, which is one of my favorite bios. This is pulled from Amazon. Christopher Moore is the author of the novels Secondhand Souls, Sacre Bleu, A Dirty Job, and Lamb. He lives in San Francisco, California. There's I've seen other bigger ones where it says like he's the author of 16 novels, including blah, blah, blah. But this was short and sweet. Like it. See, when I see something like this, I wonder to myself. So, because, yeah, he's written 
but you're probably right probably 16 or something novels right but there's four mentioned here do you think they're like his favorite four or like the best selling four or I, like yeah. how somebody i wonder like because... lamb is probably the one he's best known for right i yeah. I, I think um so it makes sense the lamb is in there but how do you pick those other three because two of them are from a series uh, the same series and then soccer blue was a standalone like i don't know how you yeah well and then on the back of the book because we got um physical like review copies um that's it says is the author of 16 previous novels including noir secondhand soul sacre blue fool and lamb so like almost the same I don't know. Like, either there's got to be some strategy to it because the those like dirty job wasn't listed on the book. Uh, and other but like noir was the most recent one. I I don't know. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Look, you said there must be a strategy, and after reading, uh, which we'll <laughs> talk about on our next episode probably, but after reading the afterword from this book, I think I think Mr. Moore might disagree with you on there being a strategy <laughs> around a lot of this. <laughs> Any rate. Here is the synopsis for um, Shakespeare for Squirrels. Shakespeare meets Dashiell Hammett in this wildly entertaining murder mystery from New York Times bestselling author Christopher Moore, an uproarious, hard-boiled take on the Bard's most performed play, A Midsummer Night's Dream, featuring Pocket, the hero of Fool and the Serpent of Venice, along with his sidekick Drool and pet monkey Jeff. Set adrift by his pirate crew, Pocket of Dog Snogging, last seen in the Serpent of Venice, washes up on the sun-bleed shores of Greece, where he hopes to dazzle the Duke with his comedic brilliance and become his trusted fool. But the island is in turmoil. Aegeus, the Duke's minister, is furious that his daughter Hermia is determined to marry Demetrius instead of Lysander, the man he has chosen for her. The Duke decrees that if, by the time of the wedding, Hermia still refuses to marry Lysander, she shall be executed or consigned to a nunnery. Pocket, being Pocket, cannot help but point out that this decree is complete bollocks and that the Duke is an <laughs> egregious weasel for having even suggested it. Irritated by the fool's impudence, the Duke orders his death. With the Duke's guards in pursuit, Pocket makes a daring escape. He soon stumbles into the wooded realm of the fairy king Oberon, who, as luck would have it, is short a fool. His jester Robin Goodfellow, the mischievous sprite better known as Puck, was found dead. Murdered. Oberon makes Pocket an offer he can't refuse. He will make Pocket his fool and have his death sentence lifted if Pocket finds out who killed Robin Goodfellow. But as anyone who is even vaguely aware of the bard's most performed play ever will know, Nearly every character has a motive for wanting the mischievous sprite dead. With too many suspects and too little time, Pocket must work his own kind of magic to find the truth, save his neck, and ensure that all ends well. A rollicking tale of love, magic, madness, and murder, Shakespeare for Squirrels is a Midsummer Night's Noir, a wicked and brilliantly funny good time conjured by the singular imagination of Christopher I'm going to insert like applause at the end of this, I think, in, in when I'm editing this, because like it, uh, it, that's a lot, first of all, to read. Uh, and if, if Livius had a, had a slip up here or there, just be glad you didn't hear me read it because he's like 10 times better at like reading, you know, sight reading or whatever that's called than I am. And ugh, that is rough. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Uh, are you familiar with the Midsummer Night's Dream? Let's start there. Um, let's start. Yeah. Uh, no, not not in the least. Uh, I, you know what? And I was thinking about this, like, because this is the third book um, that 
uh, includes Pocket, the character, and all of the books have had some sort of Shakespearean element to them, and I have not become any more. I even thought to myself as I was reading that I should find some sort of adaptation of it, of the Midsummer Night's Dream, and watch it or whatever, just to like see like a non Christopher Moore version. But I no, no, I have zero experience with it. What about you? No, none, none. And that's the embarrassing part, right? Like I got, I was reading it in the afterward and I was like, oh, hey, look, this is completely kind of loosely based on something by Shakespeare. I'll, I'll tell you though, I have had, um, there's a whiskey called a Midsummer Night's Dram, which is um, like a rye whiskey. And I've had that a few times. So, I mean, and I've had a beer called Oberon. So, I mean, I have some experience in this. That's yeah. I mean, that's almost the same thing as being intimately familiar with Shakespeare. (laughs) Um, I did recognize, and I know we're going to get into the story in a second, but the the play that they're they're putting on the the rude mechanicals, right? The Mm -hmm. um, uh, I did recognize that that sounded a lot like Romeo and Juliet. That I did get. (laughs) So I will say before we dive into the book, we have like we started to acknowledge the Shakespeare aspect of it. Um, even though I'm not familiar with um, literally any Shakespeare, I will say that I did go to Wikipedia, you know, the place where all knowledge is stored. And I read the plot synopsis for it, the actual play Midsummer Night's Dream. And this book is basically with a few embellishments that I'm sure we'll acknowledge that exact story with the same characters, same plot points, like the the major, major plot points are all pretty faithful to the original story. Um, the murder mystery is something that changes aspects of the story. Um, but otherwise, if you're familiar with Midsummer Night's Dream, you already know a lot of the stuff that's happening in the book, and you know a lot of the characters that are in the book. Let's start off with a character that does not appear in a Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> so this book kicks off um, shortly after Serpent of Venice. Um, some time has passed, but uh, Pocket and uh, Drool, uh, who is mentioned in the um, synopsis, is the is Pocket's sidekick, and uh, a little a little dull on the dull side. Um, and Jeff, their monkey, have been um, evicted, ejected, um, kicked off a pirate ship, and left to fend for themselves uh, at sea. And uh, it's been days um, without any food. Um, crazy shit is starting to happen to them, right? From hunger and, you know, and from thirst. Um, but they do end up um, on land. Yeah. So basically they've been uh, at sea long enough where they're, uh, they're out of food, they're out of water. It's choppy water. So they kind of crash and, and end up on the shore. And um, that's where we're introduced to uh, one of the first non-moor characters, Cobweb, who uh, finds them on the shore and saves them, basically, I guess. Uh, uh, well enough that they can uh, travel, um, you know, farther into Greece, um, where they discover um, the mechanicals, um, which I think, right? So so did, did you look up the definition for mechanicals? Are we able to... I think that just means workers, right? I think it's... I took it as a general term for, like, yeah, the, the people who do, like, trade labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, and they have been tasked with putting on a play for the wedding that's coming up. Um, the problem is none of them, you know, they're, they're trade laborers, essentially, like Rob said, and they don't have any theater experience. But our hero Pocket at least thinks he does. <laughs> so he volunteers to help them get the play going in the, in the right direction. 
Yeah, and and honestly, like a lot of this setup happens in the very first few chapters. So like, as the mechanicals agree to have him help them uh, prepare for the play that they're putting on, uh, they run into um, basically a couple of like goons, like government goons named Blacktooth and Burke. So they come across this meeting and start questioning him about like you know what are you know like basically like the modern equivalent would be like asking for ID and stuff like that. And a little skirmish goes down. And um, this is the part that I'm a little bit weird about. And I want to get Livius's opinion on because um, as, as this little kerfluffle happens, um, Drool gets captured by a bunch of guards and um, one of the bad guys, well, bad guys, the adversaries or whatever takes a swing with a sword at pocket misses but then they think that he disappeared um, and they can't see where he went. And so I want to talk a little, I want to talk this through. And usually like, I don't expose my lack of knowledge of what happened in a story, like as we're talking, but like this part confused <laughs> me. Mm-hmm. Do you, what's your take on what went down? Sure. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure I have a solid grasp on what went down. So what we saw was um, that, that he disappears, but then Pocket immediately after that meets Puck, who's Robin Goodfellow, who is a, an elf with magical powers, who convinces Pocket that Pocket is dead. Um, what happened was, and I'm, I'm I'm in the 90th percentile sure on this, is that Puck made Pocket disappear, saving him from probably death um, from the palace guards that 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 accost them uh, while they're practicing their play. But as a joke, he tells Pocket he's dead, and Pocket believes it. So he was made invisible by Puck Gotcha. in that scene. I think that's what your question was, that's, something around yeah. what happened there. Yep. It was a little confusing because, like, uh, and I guess that would make sense because, um, and this isn't spoiling anything, but Puck has some actual, like, magical um, qualities, and, and so, like, that is something that he could accomplish. But also the fact that um, Jones, the puppet on the stick that Pocket carries everywhere, um, was talking without the the support of Pocket um, yeah. threw me off too because like that's not something that's ever happened before. So, but it's it's absolutely something Puck as a as a with his magical powers could uh, could make happen, which is really trickstery. It is, and I mean, like you you said, it's not you know not a spoiler, and I agree because every time the name Puck comes up, it's you know basically that asshole, and he has magic. Like that's literally every he's brought yeah. up. Like those are the two <laughs> things that are said about him. Nothing else. It's literally always like that guy's a jerk because he did these things and the yep. motherfucker has magic. So, um, yeah. So Puck sends uh, Pocket on his way. Pocket thinking he is dead <laughs> is, is mm-hmm. going to move on through the forest. Um, where you know, and again, I don't know how far we gonna go into the story, but he does um, re-encounter Cobweb, who uh, who is a fairy. And uh, ultimately, a, a, a group of, of her friends. And again, I, the, the whole thing becomes this. I guess because it says there's a murder mystery, I guess I'll take one further step than that. Um, it, pretty early into the book, Pocket finds Puck. And Puck has been killed by a crossbow. Um, so one of the, the things, and we can talk about the story in like kind of very general terms... But really, at the heart of this, one of the the things that needs to be resolved is who killed Puck. But through the course of the rest of the story, which, again, I I, I kind mm-hmm. of lauded uh, Christopher Moore for this kind of 
Like, this is kind of interesting. I don't know how many, like, straight up, like, detective mysteries he's written. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so now that I know that some of it's Midsummer Night's Dream, I don't know how much credit uh, goes to him versus, you know, to, to the source material. Um, but basically, everybody else is involved in, like, everybody has an angle either around the, the death of Puck or this upcoming wedding. And in, in true fashion to kind of modern um, uh, mystery um, tales, there are a lot of tasks put on Pocket. Um, so it's kind of like he's like, well, I really need to know this. And they're like, all right, well, I can help you with that. But what I'll need you to do for me is this and that type of kind of quid pro quo through the course of a mystery um, kind of extends throughout the whole book. And the real leverage is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, Drool is held captive by the, the Duke and uh, his bride to be. And uh, so his whole motivation is I got to free um, his original motivation, I'll say, because like as the story goes on, you know, things evolve. Uh, but his original motivation is um, I have to get Drool out of prison. And if I do, you know, task A for, for Theseus and task B for Hippolyta, Hippolyta, I'm going to just say that's how you say it. Um, those are the things I have to do in order to free my friend, or at least while I'm doing those tasks, I can find a way to do my own thing and, and spring him or whatever. So his motivation is they got my boy locked up and I, and I can't leave without him. I have to go and free him. And so that's the driving force for him to agree to do all these things that um, these, these people want him to do. I will say that the, the manufactured part of the story that um, is not part of the original Shakespearean play is the whole murder mystery. So if you're not familiar um, in the actual Midsummer's night, Midsummer night's dream, puck doesn't die. He's kind of a character throughout the um, like the entire story. So his death and the mystery and, and finding out who did it is, is the twist that changes um, the way that the story goes down from what it was in the original Shakespearean stuff. So through the course of this, um, Rob, I don't, I'm not sure why Rob did this, but he took, he has <laughs> notes for like 24 characters, I think. And that's, that's, <laughs> he's probably missing some. That's all I'm going to say. Like it, it, like this is a lot of characters in this book and a lot of, um, balls to keep in the air, um, for Christopher Moore and for us as readers to kind of follow along. So, uh, there are a slew of fairies that we're introduced to, um, you know, again, as mentioned in the synopsis, Oberon, who's the. Um, the 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 night king and his group of goblins then there's kind of like the royalty aspect of it right so the rich people then there's like the poor people and the middle of it all is pocket all i'll say is that i'm glad he killed puck because um and he says this in the afterward but you know there's only room for one fool in this and and pocket to me seems like it'd be the fool i want to follow on a story yeah i i agree um and I, yeah, I'm going to acknowledge something that me and Livius kind of casually were talking about off off podcast. It's 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 a lot to keep track of when you're reading, and um, this is actually something that in the afterward, um, I believe, more acknowledged was that having um, similar characters have the same first letter in their name is very confusing. And um, so Hermia and Helena 
are, are two characters of the same kind of plot line in the story. And so I didn't even bother trying to like separate the two in my mind. I just knew, Oh, it's one of those girls in that, in that particular plot line. So there is a lot of, a lot of stuff to, to keep track of, but one of the saving graces is that more effortlessly always makes the story entertaining. So I felt comfortable knowing that as long as I could keep track of what was going on with pocket and drool and cobweb and kind of the main uh, thread of characters, everything else would be, um, I, I know that I knew that I would know enough um, to, to still have the story mean something. And that extends even further into, I had a, I, I was confident that not being familiar with Midsummer Night's Dream wouldn't take away from my enjoyment of the story. Yeah. I didn't even know it was a thing. So yes, I agree, <laughs> I, I agree with you on that. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, and, and always for me, the strength in Moore's writing is his characters and, and pocket, um, you know, now in his third appearance is always super enjoyable because he's goddamn funny and Moore always manages to kind of introduce these other characters. So we were talking about, um, let me find it in the list of um, characters, but the, uh, the the two palace guards, even the interaction between them, one of them is is just a moron who um, uses the wrong word for things. So like a similar sounding word, but the wrong word when I was correcting <laughs> him, yeah. even these little side characters were, were super entertaining. Um, I want to give a uh, special kudos for the introduction of cobweb. So without spoiling anything in the story, all I can say is I hope that we find a way to, to see her again. Cause she is definitely my favorite new character of Moore's is cobweb. Fully agree. Uh, I want to, I want to make a point to say that I actually like with the character list that I made for our notes, I did a cheat. Um, there was a character list in the Wikipedia entry from Midsummer Night's Dream. So I copy pasted that. And then I just added in, the characters that he had from like other, so he borrowed um, some characters from. He borrowed Rumor, who is this narrator character who just shows up to like basically, literally just dump exposition or um, refocus the narrative in a very like um, self-aware, like not self-aware but fourth mm-hmm. wall kind of way, where we're aware that that's what's going on. Uh, is is from Henry the Fourth. And um, Blacktooth and Burke, which are the characters that Livius was just talking about, are borrowed from or inspired by characters in Much Do About Nothing. Um, so I, I don't, I, I didn't go through, I didn't comb through the book like I usually do and find a name and write down what they do. I just <laughs> stole it all from Wikipedia this time. <laughs> um, I, the other character I wanted to mention was Rumor Painted in Tongues, and I know these borrowed from another story, but I will say that again. Um, it's a great introduction to a character and, and the purpose that he serves there. There is every scene in the book that rumor is in, I think is, is great. Um, so yes, perhaps this is a retelling um, with added bits from, you know, a, a famous play. Um, but the things that Moore does to personalize it are Look, I, I don't know that I could read um, Midsummer Night's Dream. I don't even know if you can <laughs> read it. I mean, it's a play, right? I mean, I know you can, but I don't, I'm sure there's probably like a novelization of it. Um, all I can say is that I can't imagine I'd find it nearly as enjoyable um, as I did being taken through the book by pocket and with the other um, items that, that more introduces into the story. Um, fully agree. That's actually good. That's that will definitely come up in my, um, my wrap up for the book. One thing I want to acknowledge is that this book is called uh, 
Shakespeare for squirrels. And there's something that we have not mentioned yet, and that's squirrels. And all I'm going to say is um, that there are squirrels in the book, and um, it's something that he didn't need to do, the way that he incorporated squirrels into the book. But it is so fucking fundamentally Christopher Moore, the way that he did use them. And it is absolutely something that uh, I'm very thankful he chose to use because um, it just added a fun element to the book that was entertaining. And um, it, it made for some <laughs> some really funny, like, one-off uh, moments and stuff. So his incorporation of squirrels into the book was um, was great, but we can't spoil how he did that. That's why I was afraid you were going. I didn't know. I was like, when do I stop him? Because I don't think he should be talking about this. But I think he did a very good job rolling rolling that out. <laughs> you um, had like the hooked I, uh, stick with the stick with the hook on the end. You're going to pull me off the stage. Yes, correct. <laughs> I'm surprised one of those didn't show up in this book. So, yeah, I don't know how much else we can say. Um, it, you know, it's it's a it's a Christopher Moore book. They're always entertaining. Um, I you know. There are a number of authors that I that I read that I don't care about the story at all, and and Moore is one of them because I know his characters are gonna are gonna deliver, and that's you know what I mean. That's kind of where I'm at with this book. Like it didn't matter if this was based on a Midsummer Night's Dream or on you know whatever Rent. Like I, if if Moore is writing it, it it's gonna be kind of tongue in cheek funny and a book that that made, like you kind of smile more often than not while reading it. Um, yes, I agree with that. Uh, my only other thought, uh, going back to the fact that this is um, based off of Midsummer Night's Dream, is, yeah, I mean, it does follow the story pretty faithfully with, like, some uh, necessary adjustments based on, um, like, the way he chose to change the plot. Um, but, yeah, if you know how that story plays out, he's pretty faithful to, like, the, the main beats, but he definitely puts his own stank on it pretty heavily <laughs> throughout, so... Uh, I don't know. You want anything else or do you want to just, uh, you want to do some wrap ups? Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and kick it off? All right. It's Christopher Moore. I've read every book that he's written. I, I really, uh, I love when a new Christopher Moore book comes out. So, um, that's, that's my personal bias. I was excited about it and I knew that he was going to deliver. And obviously he did. Uh, I'm very happy with, um, the, the opportunity to, to read more of his stuff whenever it comes out. That being said, important things I want the listener to know is that um, you don't have to have a working knowledge of the Shakespearean side of things in order to appreciate the book. Um, part of me wanted to go through and get an idea of that before I read it, decided not to, and the book is just as entertaining and, and uh, interesting without without having that knowledge. And that's what, like, so I have a note when it, when it comes to language um, one of the reasons that I don't approach like trying to uh, become more familiar with Shakespearean stuff is the little bit that I've sampled in my life has been so fucking difficult to understand that it makes it um, like, you know, makes it really not worth it kind of in a way, which sounds kind of lazy or whatever. But um, I'm probably in the majority in thinking that um, that being said, having someone like Moore who took the time to understand the original stuff, understand what it means and find a way to uh, retell it in his own way and adding his own um, like unique spin and, and humor and style to it is actually probably like beneficial to people in a, in a big way because 
now I have an understanding of that story in a way that makes sense to me. And if I wanted to, I could explore that further or I could just say, all right, I get the idea of that story. That's good enough for me. So the fact that we have people out there that are, that are willing to kind of make that effort brings to us things from the past that we wouldn't have access to otherwise. So um, definitely big points to Christopher Moore for, for taking that approach. Um, like Livia said earlier, one of his big strengths is the characters that he writes. And um, my thought about this specific book with, what is it, like 20, 25 characters that I listed and there are more beyond that is that he's the type of person that he writes a character to be uniquely that character. You see, you read these books from time to time with, I guess I could say less skilled authors where every character feels like a different shade of the same color. Like someone's snarky and uses, you know, intelligent language. And then everybody else in the book is somewhat snarky and somewhat uses intelligent language he has a way of making characters their own selves, which um, it's one of those things where it, it's one of those things where when it works good, you don't notice it. But um, for me, that character aspect of his books is always one of the most, one of the things that makes it the most readable. So um, those are kind of the two big things that I wanted to say uh, about what I think are strengths of the book. Overall, it's just really solid, well-written, um, it carries all the classic Christopher Moore characteristics, his style, his humor. And, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And this gets my highest rating so far this year at nine out of 10. I want to tack on a little bit to what Rob said before I get into my review. Yes. On reading like old English plays. God, that sounds terrible. The language would be, uh, terrible <laughs> uh, that being said not only do i uh do i know for a fact that you don't have to be familiar with the midsummer night's dream um you don't have to really pick up the previous two books if you don't want to i think that this book does enough of a job giving uh, uh the main character uh a foundation within the book that you probably don't need to know his backstory at this point so don't worry about necessarily having to go back right now and pick up fool um that being said uh, if you read this, you'll probably want to go back and read Fool and The Serpent of Venice, I, I would imagine, because this is very enjoyable. Um, so so Pocket's third outing. Although I really enjoyed the previous two books, I think this one, for some reason, might have endeared me to Pocket even more than the other ones did. So like I enjoyed those, but now I feel like I'm a Pocket fan after this one for some reason, and I, I can't quite put my finger on it. Uh, Moore's books are often... Um, you know, satire, um, they're like silly at times, like unbelievably silly at times, but the delivery is so good that, like I said, you can't help but read this with a, with a smile on, on your face. And, and that's, you know, that, that holds true from all the way back from lamb, the first book that I read by, by Christopher Moore. And, uh, I guess that's where I was going with this other than Biff. I think that pocket is my new favorite Christopher Moore character. Um, so really, really enjoying his adventures. Yeah, there's a little bit of a, a mystery. There's a ton of magic. There's a ridiculous number of like relationship interactions between people to, to keep track of. Um, and even if you don't follow it all the way through, it almost doesn't matter because the characters are so entertaining that that any interaction this book between two characters is, is 
enough to carry you just on that strength without a ton of concern about the the intricate and complicated at times story that's going on um, behind it. Um, we did just change, oddly enough, on our scoring system. We talked about in the last episode. We changed audience to conclusion, so how the story wraps up versus um, how wide an audience is. We did it probably one week too soon because this probably would have been my highest rated audience of the year. <laughs> so last week we reviewed satire, right? It was Bentley Little, The Bank, which was um, a great story but gross and terrifying in parts. And then we read what I would call another satire this week, which is lighthearted and funny and, and heartfelt. So uh, two satirists back-to-back. Um, similar great results, but doing it very, very different ways. Um, I'll probably read everything Christopher Moore writes for as long as he continues writing. So um, no surprise. Also, I believe my highest um, rating of the year. I also came in at nine based on those um, eight categories or whatever that we rank it on. Nine for this one, 10. All right. I'm going to get the calculator. I got to get the calculator app um, on my phone. Nine plus nine divided by two. That's nine. That's an overall nine, score of nine. nine yep. Uh, for that the, is correct. For the book, which is <laughs> this definitely handily beats all of the other books that we've reviewed this year. But I mean, we've been given some some pretty good scores out. So we've been we've been reading good books. Um, uh, Chris Moore just he just he just knows how to do it. Um, one thing that we didn't talk about this time that we typically talk about uh, with Christopher Moore books is character crossover and so i noticed something um so like it seems like as as time is going on uh back in the day more used to have character from one book show up in another book pretty frequently that's not really happening the same way lately um and i was like i was kind of confused about it but i went over to his website recently and the way his website lists his books is by almost like series so um the Dirty Job and Secondhand Souls books are the Death Merchant Chronicles. And Serpent of Venice, Fool, Shakespeare for Squirrels are the Chronicles of Pocket the Fool. And so it seems like as he continues to make books, it's less like there's these variety of, of books where a character can cross over and more like he's creating um, maybe not necessarily intentionally, but like a series um, so I, I just find that interesting because one of my favorite things about him had always been a character from, you know, one book showing up in another, like the angel from lamb being in the stupidest angel, that kind of thing. Um, and, and it's not happening as much, but at least that's kind of like an explanation why it seems like he's, uh, but also I think timing, like stuff that takes place in like, you know, Shakespearean times what versus... I was modern times mm-hmm. can't cross over so like um the date of of books has has a, par- a part to play in that but um just something that i thought i'd point out so these particular books because they take place so so far in the past don't benefit from being able to cross over as much there you go biff biff could have been in this one somehow biff could have been in it so maybe some yeah. of the sacred blue characters could have too i don't know it's a good point good but, point um, we are scheduled to have an interview with Christopher Moore, which is super, super cool. Um, there was a little bit of a 
uh, I don't know what's the what's the word I'm looking for a roadblock with scheduling that we're working through. So hopefully the next episode you hear um, from an audio standpoint, um, will be an interview with Christopher Moore. I'm very, very excited to talk to him and, and pick his brain a little bit about some of these, some of these things. I'm sure Rob will have plenty of crossover questions for him. Yeah. In, in preparation, I've started watching um, YouTube, like uh, videos of him at like book signings and stuff, asking and doing Q and A's. Um, partially because I hate to be the guy that asks the question that gets asked all the time, but also just to kind of like give me ideas of things to talk about. And, um, he is always just, he's always entertaining the way his books are, but that guy is like intimidatingly smart. Um, and so I'm a little bit like, I don't, you know, when you get a smart person, I feel like I have to step up my game just so I don't sound like a, like a dumbass when I'm asking questions. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm a little bit nervous about it. See, and I've watched zero Christopher Moore on YouTube. Not intimidated at all. <laughs> I'll just let you ask all the questions. Then. There you go. <laughs> yeah, looking forward right, to that. All right, so let's check in. One more week of quarantine. What did you watch this week? Um, Yeah, so I'm going to start with the not as good one. And then uh, there's two things. So the first is I watched the second episode of uh, the new Penny Dreadful. Not liking oh. it. Not liking it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, like so. The problem is, all right. So here's the thing. I, I think it's a very. Uh, I'm trying to put. I, I was trying to put a finger on like what is just not resonating with me, and um, I'm I'm trying to say this in the the best way possible. So like, when you think about the original Penny Dreadful series. It's Dracula, it's Frankenstein, it's all that kind of stuff. It's all like the white boy fantasy stuff you grew up with, right? And um, with this new series, um, they're going for a real authentic um, Mexican experience that I have no knowledge of. So I feel like it's just taking longer to uh, appreciate what's going on or why it's going on. And there's just a lot of racial tension involved that I just I've never a big fan of the racial tension plot um kind of thing so it's just it's it hasn't endeared itself to me yet so that's interesting um so let me ask a question do you feel because I I haven't seen any of it so do you think that someone that perhaps grew up in a in a traditional like Mexican household has a different feel like this, like maybe you did about there being, you know, whatever vampires and Frankenstein in the, in the first one. That's what I'm curious about because, um, Mm. culturally I have no knowledge of, um, like Mexican folklore or, um, religion or anything like that. So if there is, um, something that, you know, you can identify with that, like makes it easier to get into the story, I, I don't have that. And I feel like it's at least I, I feel like that's causing barriers to my, um, you know, getting into the story, but I, I'm thinking maybe that's, that maybe that's a thing. That's really interesting. Cause from a, a storytelling standpoint, and again, I'm, I'm doing this from somebody who's only ever, you know, taken in stories and not created them. Like one of the cool things about, especially, um, you know, supernatural type shows is the discovery process right Mm -hmm. so it's fun to discover things but i guess 
if you're writing from some type of source material and you assume that a, a good portion of your audience understands that source material, then maybe your discovery, what you're putting out for people to discover isn't as good. And then it loses the people who aren't familiar with it. Yeah. It's a possibility. You follow like, what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I mean, and it's weird because like, I, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of another, like another approach. Like if there was some sort of like, like Russian Yeti, story that you know like um would that be as as foreign to me i don't know like I, I i don't know what there's some sort of like block going on where i'm just not loving the culture sure. and it might just be that there's not enough of the supernatural stuff and it's more of the everyday people strife i don't know that could be it yeah too. i was just thinking because you know you said yeti and the first thing that came to mind was the ancestor the daniel trussoni book that we read yeah and like we were cool with discovering that I was cool with, I guess I won't speak for you, but I thought that like part of the fun of that book was kind of finding out about the folklore and like getting to discover what this creature is that had been hinted at. But I'm guessing yeah. she did that in a way then that was interesting. Cause I had no idea what, you know what I mean? Like what that region has for folklore or, or whatever. So anyway, well, I'm sorry well, yeah. to hear that. Cause I know you were very much looking forward to that show. Yeah, And then honestly, like that was one of the big selling points was like, great. We're not retreading the same shit over and over again. This is something new that I could get excited about that. I didn't know about before. And that's why I was originally enthusiastic about the series, but something's keeping me out of it. So I don't know if it's that or if it's like the, like, like I said before, there's not a lot of supernatural stuff going on. But I'm yeah, going to persist. I'm going to keep going. Show, when a show is supposed to be supernatural. Now, I, I'm I'm glad. I'm going to jump topics a little bit. <laughs> I'm glad that Josh Mallerman was really enjoying Outlander. Because Outlander was like, is, whatever, is a good show about time travel that fucking just ignores the fact that time travel is a, <laughs> is a central tenant of the show. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in some ways, like if you're tuning in for a time travel show and you watch outlander, you'll be disappointed at the lack of right. like working in, in the time travel sphere. So I guess, yeah, when you turn on a show and you expect to be a lot of supernatural shit and instead you get, you know, like you said, kind of whatever racial everyday strife that, yeah, that can be a little bit off putting. Yeah. What was the other thing you watched? Uh, yeah, the other thing that I watched that um, I really enjoyed was the Beastie Boys documentary uh, that came out from the Apple TV Plus like uh, service. Did you hear about this? No, I, 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 I did not. I'm not surprised though that you say you enjoyed it. That that doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all. I didn't know there. I didn't know this was a thing. So, how familiar are you with Beastie Boys? Uh, I mean, I could probably belt out a couple lines, but okay. not not like intimate, intimately familiar with like their career origins or anything. Okay. Um, so most people will know that one of the three Beastie Boys died. Um, I think it was like 2012 or something like that. Oh. Um, so of the three, so I'm going to try to remember the name. So it was Mike D. Um, oh, fuck. MCA. Right? That sounds right. Yeah. Uh I don't know. Anyway, um, Adam Yauch, Yauch was the name of the guy who was the one that died, and he was the guy who originally kind of brought the, the band together. The two remaining members, um, you know, uh, partnered up with uh, Spike Jones to do kind of a live documentary. So what they did was um, they put together all of like the t traditional like documentary footage, old photos, old videos, interviews, all that kind of stuff like a documentary would be. But they did a, a series of like live shows 
where they live narrated the the documentary in front of an audience. Um, so it's kind of a mm. unique approach to a documentary because it was like a documentary show as opposed to just like a, a finished film. Um, yeah, it was interesting to watch like the the progress of the band and all that stuff. Uh, it got really emotional when they started talking about, you know, what you know what happened when he died and all that stuff. But one of the things that I was I thought was interesting that I didn't know um, was that, and this doesn't mean much because I'm not a fan of this other band. But um, the original Beastie Boys, before they got big, had a girl in the band and um, uh, another person in their their orbit was it was a different. So there was two girls that were one was in the band, one was part of their friend group. And they would later go on to be in the band Luscious Jackson. That there. silence is, I have no idea who Luscious, Luscious Jackson, Jackson is. Yeah. <laughs> so that was just a weird, but they did a cool thing at the beginning of the documentary where they acknowledged once they got big, they were pushed to be just a group of boys and they had to kick out the girl and they did, hmm. but they're like, that was in the documentary on the stage. They said that was a really shitty thing to do. And we feel really bad that we did that. So usually like you hear like the person got kicked out and and it's just like a, no one really talks about it, but they just put it right out in front, right at the beginning, saying, "Hey, we kicked her out, and that was a really shitty thing to do." I yeah, I agree that that's that's cool of them. My my other thought is like, um, I guess you get to a point where you're so successful that you can look back on it and say like it was a shitty thing to do because right. when they were just trying to make it, they were probably like, "Oh yeah, fuck this! Like we don't want to work like shitty <laughs> nine to five jobs. Like yeah, we got the girls got to go. Yeah, we can do that." Oh totally, yeah. Uh, uh, but then afterwards, when you're you're successful and and can live off of you know the royalties of of you've got to fight for your right to party, um, <laughs> you could probably then afford to to look inside yourself and say, "Well, that was a terrible thing we did." Not to slight them, I I. I it's yeah, a safe, I've never yeah. just like the Beastie Boys. I've just never been a big fan. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's it's uh, it's cool that uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the documentary. Yeah, it's very good. I liked it. I here we um, go. watched something in its entirety this week. Now, not here we go. This is very very mainstream. Um, have you heard of Upload on Amazon Prime? Jesus, no, I don't think I have at all. So this came out on Friday, so you didn't have much time to uh, to to hear about it. It's um. Robbie Amell. Do you know who he is, the actor? Um, He's no. probably best known for being Stephen Amell's brother. Stephen Amell played uh, Arrow on the on the CW for uh, for a few years there. Yeah. Um. So uh, it is a weird show. So it takes place uh, in the you know we'll say near future, a few years from now, where um, before your death, you have the option to buy a service where they upload you to a basically like a heaven that is a computer generated like hotel, like resort, perhaps that um, that you live in. But then you can continue to communicate like through video calls or through um, like virtual reality, like your family can visit you and you have all your senses about you and your consciousness, you know, so it's it's like continuing to live only you live in a different place. And it's uh, about this guy who's a young guy, software developer 
who winds up having a uh, sketchy incident that causes him to wind up in the hospital and he is uploaded to one particular company that that does this thing. So it's kind of like <clears throat> it turns into an investigation as to like the circumstances surrounding his death, but it's also about his, you know, kind of goofy relationship with his um, live girlfriend, plus the relationship he develops with the like customer service rep that has to look after him. Um, and eight or 10 episodes, they're like 40 minutes each, but, uh, it, it was fun. Um, I really, I actually really enjoyed it. It was cute. It reminded Shakespeare for squirrels, right? Like a lot of like grinning through, through the episodes. Um, one word of warning, and you may consider this a spoiler or not. <clears throat> it does not have a clean ending. There's definitely a cliffhanger ending there for another season. So do not expect anything to be resolved, I guess, <laughs> towards the end of it, which annoys me. You know what I mean? I always feel like. Any TV series should have like a like even if it's a bigger overarching story, there should be a tiny resolution at the end. I feel the same way about book series. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, totally. Um, I remember when we reviewed Fifty Shades of Grey. That even though the book sucked, I was like, oh, that really was just I don't know. There wasn't like a resolution and then you know continuation of the story. It was just like a hard cut. Like there could have just been another chapter after it and it just could have kept going. So that's kind of how this is, but really enjoyable, kind of, kind of fun and funny. Nice. That's, um, when you were talking about that, um, I had this, I had this moment where I was like, wait, did I watch this? And it, I didn't, <laughs> but what I was thinking of was, um, uh, there's like a black mirror episode that does something vaguely, kind of like that with um with people and, and there's like a kind of an imaginary world when they're in like old folks homes or something and they go out and they do stuff and it reminded me of that and I was like oh shit I think I watched this but I absolutely did not <laughs> I don't know if um like, do you know Ray Kurzweil is the, I, I'm familiar with the name yeah so that's that's his belief so he is a uh, most famously known for being an inventor. Wait, yeah, I was managed... watching a video where someone was, is he, he does a lot of predicting the future and stuff. Yeah. Like, like predicting technology future, right. like not, I don't want listeners to think like, I knew, I know, you know who I'm talking about by saying that, but I don't want you to think like he predicts like lottery numbers <laughs> or like, disasters or, you know, like, you know, which Kardashian is gonna, you know, whatever, get their own show next or anything like that. Yeah, well, that's his goal. His goal in life, he actually believes, is that he will. Um, he wants to live long enough that he believes that probably, like, in the, I think it's the 2030s, that he'll be able to upload his consciousness to a computer. Probably yeah. not like this goofy little movie or that Black Mirror episode, but something where he will be able to be uploaded and exist forever inside a computer, basically. That's It's so weird that you brought that up because um, so there's this YouTube uh, channel that I, I've been watching um, lately called Answers with Joe. And it's just this dude who takes like these concept, like usually scientific concepts and breaks them down, like interesting things to talk about uh, and breaks them down in a way that is pretty understandable for anybody who uh, would watch it. And today I was watching a, a one of his videos is all about the forecasts that um uh, for basically like from 2020 through like 2050 um, that you're talking about. Uh, and, and he lays out all of the different like kind of technological things that he think is going to 
happened in that time. So it's crazy that you bring that dude up because I literally watched a video about his predictions probably 45 minutes before we started recording. Oh, wow. I, here's what I'll say about Ray Kurzweil. I watched one documentary on him probably five, <laughs> maybe even 10 years ago. Right. But I mean, it really stuck with me. So another thing that he's known for is he takes, and now I'm just making up numbers, but I want you to understand that whatever you eat on a day where you're a glutton, okay. Like on your worst fucking day, that dude takes in vitamins. Oh, he's a big supplement guy. Yeah. Well, he managed to cure, and I don't, I wish I, I wasn't really prepared to talk about him. Um, he cured a disease that he had that's uncurable, and he did it all through vitamins. Like, this guy <laughs> is prepared to, like, hack his body to live as long as is necessary to get his end goal. And really, the purpose of me saying that is, like, I, I'm, you know, I'm some level of bummed whenever a celebrity dies or whatever, and I'm like, oh, that's unfortunate. I kind of like that guy or whatever. Like Ray Kurzweil is one guy I'm actually like rooting for to stay alive. And it's not that I have some <laughs> like I follow him online or I'm on his Twitter or any. I, I don't. I watch one documentary on him, but it stuck with me so much that I think the day that I find out that guy died, I will genuinely be sad. Sadder than, you know, when a musician or actor or author, you know what I mean? Like he's one guy I'm pulling for because he has like a goal. Like there's a reason he wants to stay alive. And it's not just to, like continue taking breaths. Like he has planned his whole life out for this one end result where he can get into a computer before he drops dead. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things, <laughs> one of the things in this video that like blew my mind is like, he's got like a dozen honorary doctorates from different like uh, university. Like the dude is just like super bona fide. but yeah, like his whole idea is like you said, uploading consciousness. Um, and then like the idea that, as AI evolves, um, the the concept of like an organic human will become less and less common, mm -hmm. um, and yep. and like less, I guess, advantageous or whatever. Um, so yeah, like transhumanism, like becoming part machine, part human, and then like obviously to the point where your consciousness is basically entirely computerized, right? Kind of as a thing. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm rooting, I'm rooting for the guy who's trying to put us in the matrix. You, yeah. 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 Well, in to, his I version, though, rethink this. like that version, we are the machines though, kind of. So like, we're not batteries. We're, we're the, we're the ones that won. Yeah, that's so. true. We can all be the one. Yeah. We're all Neos out there flexing and shit. Yeah. No kidding. And then has the first, but see, the first thing that came to mind was Christopher Lambert, and there can be only one <laughs> Highlander. Never mind. We're going. We're going down a deep wow. dark hole. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening. Uh, like I said, we should should have Christopher Moore up as our next episode. If not, there's going to be a book live happening probably on Facebook. Probably less than a week from when you're hearing this. So uh, follow us on Facebook. Uh, join the book podcast listening group so we can keep you posted on stuff like that. Yeah. So I guess that's it. That'll that'll wrap it up for this episode. Uh, until next time, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. Fuck stockings. <laughs> <laughs>